Hi, I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer magazine and its website, ucobserver.org. And you're listening to The Observer's first ever podcast, produced by the magazine's editorial department. Over the next while, we'll hear from singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn and author Janet Stobie. First, I'd like to share one of my recent observations columns with you. It's titled, Consenting to a Miracle. Last December, a friend of ours who had been in declining health for years underwent a double lung transplant. A little more than two months later, she was sitting at our dining room table, attacking a bowl of fish stew, breathing comfortably and looking healthier than she has in a very long time. Miracle is a word I use cautiously, but I have no hesitation in the case of major organ transplants. The medical knowledge and expertise that go into a transplant like our friends is almost beyond mortal comprehension. The fact that transplants of this magnitude have become almost commonplace is itself miraculous. Surgeons at the Toronto Hospital where our friend received her new lungs have performed more than a thousand lung transplants since pioneering the procedure in the early 1980s. Worldwide, such transplants number in the tens of thousands. Double lung transplants are still considered a last resort, but it's a last resort that didn't exist just a generation ago. The sobering side of transplants is that somebody has to die before another person can receive a new lease on life. The miracle lurks in a tragedy. Our friend will likely never know whose lungs she received, but she is acutely aware that someone is dead while she is alive. She's a person of deep faith, certain that God has been a companion throughout her long illness, during the ups and downs and stops and starts leading up to her surgery and throughout the arduous recovery that followed. On a practical level, she understands that she might never have had a transplant if the person whose lungs she received hadn't consented at some point to make their organs available in the event of their death. Organ donation can seem pretty abstract until you're sitting across the table from someone who might not be there were it not for someone else's lungs or heart or kidneys or liver. The old cliches about something good coming from something bad don't seem like cliches anymore. They ring absolutely true. A family grieves, another rejoices. One life ends, but another is saved. That's the logic of this particular miracle. Canadians are full of good intentions when it comes to organ donation, but weak on follow-through. According to the Canadian Transplant Society, 90% of Canadians favor organ donation in principle, but only 25% have formally registered to be a donor. The result is thousands of people on waiting lists and countless deaths that might have been avoided. Our friend tells me about a man who moved to the top of the lung transplant priority list after her surgery. He eventually died because no lungs became available. The moral of the story? More donors mean more miracles. Signing a donor card and carrying it in your wallet is not as effective as recording your consent with your provincial registry for organ and tissue donations. In most provinces, you can do it online. It takes about two minutes, and the information is kept confidential until you are declared legally dead and hospital staff meet with your family. The registries help demystify the harvesting process. 
And they point out that by making your attentions clear and keeping them on record, you lessen the emotional burden on your loved ones. I called our friend the other day. She was busy cooking dinner. Her voice was strong and clear, and she reported that she and her husband were preparing to vacate the apartment they had rented for her recovery. They were going home. We made arrangements to pick up a chair they'd borrowed from us. I never imagined something so mundane could seem so wondrous. gone through different perspectives on it and uh, on on the whole issue of God and Jesus and uh, you know what it is to be a seeker of, of relationship with God the, the hints are all around us all the time I have other songs that, that say this also that uh, you know we tend not to see uh, evidence of God's presence uh, as readily as it's presented I don't think at least I don't, but, um, but once in a while it hits you. You're listening to Canadian singer-songwriter Bruce Coburn. For more than five decades, Coburn has been on a journey of protest and spiritual discovery. He's traveled to countries like Guatemala, Mali, Mozambique, Afghanistan, and Nepal, performing and speaking out on native rights, landmines, and the environment. More recently, he chronicled his faith, fears, and activism in his newly released memoir, rumors of glory. Coburn spoke to the observer from his home in San Francisco. My, my career has been, well, I, I'm reluctant to even use the word career, but it, but it's the most convenient one, um, it has been pretty good, but uh, is, is it glorious? I'm not sure. I think, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not glorious enough to be featured in the tabloids. Uh, Am I protesting stuff? I'm not sure if I'm protesting stuff as much as I'm just trying to trying to hold it up for people to see it. And and I mean I'm holding up things that have an emotional impact on me, so I care. I, you know, but I, I don't feel like I'm out there waving a placard. I, I feel like uh, I, like I want to grab people by the scruff of the neck and put their face in it. <laughs> you know, look at this. Look at this. How are you going to be happy with this? You know, can you live with this? And uh, with, I mean, that's with respect to a song like "If I Had a Rocket Launcher" or, or "Call It Democracy" or you know songs of that sort. Um, that's kind of the feeling that accompanies those songs for me. But uh, I mean, uh, with respect to how an audience might perceive them, I, I have my own feelings about "If I Had a Rocket Launcher" in particular because it, it was uh, a pretty heavy experience that produced it. That spirit is around for sure. There's lots of people writing about lots of stuff. Uh, the, the difficulty is getting it through to to an audience, and I don't know much about that. I, I uh, you know, uh, people. I'm still in the mindset that makes albums, <laughs> which is really old school and archaic at this point. Uh, I mean, there's still people doing it, but 
lots of us doing it, but it's, uh, you know, the younger artists are not going there. I mean, there are no record companies offering contracts for one thing, or very few, uh, unless you're in the Katy Perry genre or that, thereabouts. Um, you know, I'm not very in touch with younger artists. Uh, I, I run across all kinds of stuff in passing, and I, I don't know most of their names or really deeply what they do, but I hear... I hear a lot of everything. I hear a lot of stuff that's just sort of... I, I think the ratio has probably been the same all along between music that just... or songwriting, let's say, that doesn't go in that direction and songwriting that does. Um, every now and then there's a public window opens for access to that music or to allow that music through. Um, and it becomes fashionable. Um, but... Uh, and then that window closes and you don't hear about it but the same people are still doing it or new people are so there's always been there's always been an undercurrent of, of protest I I struggle with a lack of trust um, which I didn't know back in the day. I, I, when I was a more active churchgoer, well, I've sort of become that again, actually, in, in the last few months. But I, but when I was a, an active churchgoer in the 70s and early 80s, uh, I didn't think that I mistrusted God. I, I, I felt like I had pretty solid faith. I have, I've never lost faith in the existence of God, uh, really, for not for long, anyway. And but uh, I had a conversation with with a Presbyterian minister friend of mine who who uh, said, "Well, you know, you know, do you believe in an all-powerful, all-seeing God?" And uh, I said, "Yeah, I do, but I don't trust him. <laughs> I don't want to be available to him." I mean, I fight with myself over this because I don't want to be available to him because he's going to ask me to do shit I don't want to do. And, and uh, you know, this is a totally wrong-headed way to think about it, but this is what I wrestle with. This, this is my default position these days, and I, and I struggle with that. So, and, it's, and I'm winning, little by little, or God's winning. It's, it's, it's getting better. But um, I guess, and I think in the end, the doubt, the period of of doubt that I've gone through, which has been quite extended, has been an exercise in going deeper. That, you know, yeah, okay, you can be a surface believer, but underneath that is what? And how? And what will it take to expose what's underneath it? And then, then how do you get underneath that? And uh, so I feel like that's what I've been doing the last few years, and, 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 and I feel like it's it's a work in progress, but it is, it is progressing. I still have that, that feeling. I mean, I don't, I look at the world, I think, you know, I worry what kind of horror awaits my little daughter when she becomes an adult if it keeps getting worse the way I think it is um, but at the same time I don't know that it's going to get worse I just feel like it is and and, uh, 
I don't know that her generation has going to figure out a solution to this, some of these issues that confront us, or that in the, in the meantime somebody else will. So, uh, you know, you have to operate. I mean, unless you just want to die right now, you got to assume that you know that there is some value in continuing. Certainly, lots of moments in my life when I felt like I was put in a particular place for a reason, even if I couldn't see what the reason was. I don't ignore that exactly, but I don't—I I don't know what my job is. I, my job is to to write the things that grab my heart and, and put them out there for people. But um, I feel like I'm here for—I have this life for some reason. And uh, it's um, hmm. well, it's just sort of part of the job of being human to to try to spread light. I guess, like I said before, I mean, it's just kind of at whatever level you can do it. And songs are are one level, and I don't. It's it's not simple. I mean, I think you can spread light with dark songs. Um, because they invite people to notice and respond to what's around them. But, uh, I mean, and it's only an invitation, of course, you don't, songs don't convince people of things, but, but they, they can be invitations. That was our conversation with Bruce Coburn. Our interview with him can be found in the June edition of The Observer and at ucobserver.org. Bruce Coburn's book, Rumors of Glory, is available in bookstores now. Janet Stobie is twice blessed, once by her adoptive mother, and again, much later in life, by her biological mom. She explains the reason why in this spirit story. Have a listen. When I was a child of 10, my mom told me this story. When the nurse handed you to me for the first time, you were sobbing. You wrapped your little arms around my neck and hung on so tightly, I knew from that moment you were meant to be my little girl. My adoptive mom cherished me always, and I her. At the age of 90, my mom died as I held her in my arms, feeling blessed to have had such a wonderful mother. I am grateful. After her funeral, I found a long white envelope in Mom's cedar chest. Written on it in Mom's familiar script were the words, Janet's Adoption Papers. With shaking fingers, I unfolded this flimsy bridge to my past. My birth name, Sharon Margaret, stared back at me. Is that me, I wondered? Do I want to be this mystery person? No. I folded that paper and tucked it into my purse. Back home, I filed it away, out of sight, but not forgotten. A year later, 
Troubled by my doctor's questions about my medical history, I unfolded that paper a second time and began my sacred journey to find my birth mother. Throughout my search, I kept telling myself, Mom left me my birth name. This is not betrayal. I found my birth mother in Arizona. We agreed to meet at a Niagara Falls hotel. When my daughter Connie and I stepped into our Niagara hotel room, a tiny stuffed lamb greeted us from a pile of gaily wrapped gifts on the dresser. As soon as my fingers touched its softness, the pain and fear of that abandoned child I had once been enveloped me. Connie held me until my sobs lessened. That night, we talked for hours about my love for my adoptive mom, about my fear of meeting this birth mother, and about being moms ourselves. The next morning, my heart pounded as I walked into the hotel lobby. A slim, erect, white-haired woman stepped forward, arms outstretched, saying, My child, my daughter. She looked like me. She sounded like me. Never had I resembled anyone in my family. I had come home. On our second visit, I mustered up the courage to ask, Why? Why did you give me away? Her eyes glistened with tears as she said, It was 1944. I was just 16 and unwed. Determined to keep you, I brought you home to my family. Dad drank all he made. We had nothing. I had to work. One night, when I came home from the restaurant, I could hear you crying when I opened the door. I found you huddled in the corner of that room, the room where father had abused me for years. You were only 16 months old, and he had started on you. I loved you too much to let him destroy you. I called the children's aid. As I listened to her story, my adult heart melted. She too became my mom. For 12 years, we had phone calls and yearly visits. Three years ago, I spent six weeks with my birth mom. For her, they were mostly six weeks of excruciating physical pain as she battled the last stages of cancer. For me, they were six weeks of sleepless nights and days. I held her as her body shook with pain, read to her as she tried to sleep, and held the pink bowl as she vomited every few hours. Yet, they were six precious weeks for both of us. On her good days, we laughed at funny movies and we shared our lives. We were mother and daughter, loving and solid. Today, 
I strive to be like both of my moms, a blessing to my children. Reverend Janet Stoby lives in Peterborough, Ontario. Her spirit story was published in the May edition of The Observer and can be found at ucobserver.org. Her latest book, Dipping Your Toes in Small Group Worship Planning, has just been released. Thanks for listening to UC Observer's inaugural podcast, where we bring you highlights from recent issues of the magazine, as well as audio insights from our contributors. The podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and at ucobserver.org, where you can find links to everything we talked about in this episode. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at UC underscore Observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, managing editor Jocelyn Bell, senior editor Kaylee Moore, senior writer Mike Milne, art director Ross Wolford, and digital content editor Kevin Spurgaitis. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage, as well as the Ontario Media Development Corporation. That's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the not-too-distant future. See you next time.